Back in light of that uh, last song that God, uh, the song was actually the words of Job. I don't know if you know that. Those are actually Job's words. Blessed be the name of the Lord when he gives and takes away right after the tragedy occurred in his family. In light of the tragedies that have occurred in our country, let's take a moment and just pray together in the midst of this kind of difficult time in our country. Father, we, we thank you that you're still sovereign, but Father, we grieve with those who grieve. We're reminded that we live in a world that is a battle zone of good and evil where the prince of the power of the air, the thief, tries to kill and destroy. Father, we ask that your restrainer would continue to restrain evil, that you would consider to raise up those who would uh, fight against evil. And Father, we ask that you would be a comfort to those who need comfort today. God, that you would draw near to all of us who are thinking about the tragedies in our country. And those who are just thinking about the individual struggles that we're dealing with um, in our own lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we have an interesting passage that actually speaks to some of these themes. Because many people know the, the famous speech Jesus gives to Peter about denying him. That's kind of a famous speech. And many people know the theme when Jesus gets to the garden. When he'll tell, uh, he'll say, not my will but yours be done in the garden. But not very many people know about the speech he gives along the way. It's a very fascinating speech that speaks to um, the nature of evil, the nature of his disciples being under attack and ultimately going to be martyred and killed mercilessly. It's a speech about whether or not you have the right to arm yourself. It's a speech about whether or not the kingdom is ultimately about those kind of things. And it's like, I think, the most unpreached passage of the Bible and occurs right between these two speeches. And there is so many different opinions on this speech, as short as it is. So I'm going to give you my best take on it as we launch into our passage today. Here's what happens as they leave the upper room. Jesus turns to his disciples on the way to the garden. He says, hey, when I sent you out before, I said no money bags, no knapsacks, and no sandals. Right? Did you lack anything? They said no. You see, Jesus was incredibly popular for the last three years. I mean, 5,000 people are showing up for loaves and fishes. Have you ever been out to Israel? I mean, without cars, without, I mean, just to find 5,000 people in that location, Jesus was a massive draw. He's the, I hate to use this example, but I will, the Justin Bieber of his day. I mean, the people were gathering. And so when the disciples went out and said, hey, I'm with Jesus, they'd be like, hey, stay at our house. Hey, we'll provide your meals. Hey, we'll take care of that. The, the disciples and Jesus have been incredibly popular. They didn't have to provide for themselves, didn't have to protect themselves. Now, there's still Sadducees and Pharisees been out to get them, but the, the populace has loved Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus says, and says, all right, well, up to this point, that's been true. But now, things are about to change. Starting now and starting into tomorrow, we're going to go from being the most popular people in the world to being outlaws. And what do you need to do about that? Well, he who has a money bag, you better take your money bag. You're going to need to provide for yourself because we're not going to have people who are looking to bring us in because they think I'm the Messiah that was going to defeat the Romans. And likewise, if you get a knapsack, you better get it. And if you don't own a sword, you better sell your garment and buy one. What? Jesus is telling his disciples to be packing. That was the equivalent. Have a sword. Protect yourself. Be ready because you're about to be outlaws. What does that mean? There's going to be three views on this. I'll keep going. So buy one. But I say to you, he's going to quote from Isaiah 53, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. 
and he will be numbered with the transgressors. I'm going to be known as of today, one of the transgressors, just like Isaiah prophesied. I'm going to be known as the outlaw, the one who didn't save us from Rome and the one that was with common criminals when he was crucified. And thus you're with me. You're also going to be known as a transgressor, as an outlaw. For the things concerning me have come to an end. So they said, oh, well, look, Lord, we have two swords. And he says, it is enough. That's the speech. So view number one is that the whole thing's a metaphor. Metaphorically, we have been popular. We're about to be outlaws. You don't need an actual sword, but just know the idea of a sword is you're about to be chased around. Be prepared. Okay. In fact, that view, when you read the phrase, it is enough, it's a rebuke. Hey, Lord, we got two swords. It is enough. No, I'm not talking about that. All right. That's the metaphor view. Now, it seems that all three views agree on one thing. The main point is we were popular and we're about to be outlaws. Be prepared. That's true no matter what view you hold. The second view is literal, which is, hey, you better get yourself a sword because we're going to have to fight against the Romans if we're going to win this thing. Now, that doesn't seem consistent at all. Christianity has never advocated through the sword. In fact, even in a few minutes when they're in the garden, the soldiers are going to show up. Peter's going to draw a sword, cut off the ear of a servant. And Jesus is going to say, no, 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 that's not what my kingdom's about. So even in trying to protect Jesus, Jesus heals the servant and says, no, it's not what I'm talking about. His kingdom is not advanced by the sword. Or third view is kind of a mixture of the two. Um, I actually share that view, which is the main point is we were popular, we're about to be outlaws, but Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, certainly would affirm self-defense. And the idea that his disciples were already packing, right? They already have two swords. They haven't even gone out to buy one. They already have one. On the Roman roads, there were constant examples of bandits. Remember Jesus' uh, story of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan? It's a man who's walking on the road and gets ambushed. So the idea that you need to constantly be protecting yourself because of people who ambush you or wild animals is certainly consistent with the Jewish understanding of self-defense, defending yourself. And it does certainly seem to be that Jesus is saying that, that this is not just a metaphor. He says, if you have a shirt, go sell the shirt to go buy a sword. He wants you to actually have a sword. So somewhere between Christianity is not about advancing by the kingdom, but Jesus is... Um, affirming the need for them to protect themselves. And I don't take this, this sarcastic view here at all. I think they're saying, hey, we got two swords. Hey, that's enough to be able to protect yourself. But then when they try and use it to advance the gospel or to advance, to protect Jesus against the kingdom of him going to the cross, he says, no, no, this is not what I was talking about. So there you go. There's my best take on a very challenging passage. So with that in mind, they're heading to the garden. And as they get to the garden, we get to our key verse for the day. Our key verse is this. Father... If it is your will, please, 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 take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Just to remind you where we are in the story. I gave you a timeline last week that we're going to work off of. It was 6 to 7 p.m. Jesus had a Passover meal, not the Passover meal with his disciples. It's now between 8 and 9 p.m. It's a beautiful moonlit night because it's Passover. The moon is full. Jesus walked with his disciples and told them, the world's about to hate you the way they hate me. It's now 9 p.m. And Jesus is going to be praying in the garden as he's talking to his disciples. And he's going to teach them how to have this incredible, nevertheless kind of prayer. That even when you don't want something to happen, how do you say, nevertheless, 
I want your will more than I want my will. How do we pray those prayers? What do those prayers look like? One of the most famous nevertheless prayers came in Dunkirk. If you've seen the movie, or if not before the movie, you know the story of what happened in history in Dunkirk. Dunkirk was a time when the Germans had pinned the Allied troops back into France. They just kept advancing, and the Allied and British troops kept losing. So they pushed back into Dunkirk, France, and at this point, there's 350,000 plus soldiers there, and the British only thought that they could save maybe 50,000. The Germans had already taken out a couple of the transport boats, and they needed to keep the other boats in in place in order to protect England because Germany was about to advance on England. So 350,000 men, 350,000 sons, children, soldiers were about to be killed. They sent a message, a three-word message back to the mainland, the soldiers did. And the message was, but if not... And those three words were a battle cry. Back in England, people sent fishing boats, people sent personal yachts, people sent any boat they had to go and rescue their their uncles, their fathers, their grandfathers, their children because of a message, which was not included in the movie, by the way, but if not. Why would that message resonate so much? Because it was a quote from the Bible. You see, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown in the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's God. And so he says, well, heat the furnace seven times hotter. <laughs> as if, well, either way, the furnace is going to burn you up, whether it's seven times hotter or hot, as if that was going to motivate them. Oh, well, if it's seven times hotter, we won't do it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we have a God who is able to save us from the fire of Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, if he does not save us from the fire, we still will only worship him and we will still stand against evil and we will still not bow down to your statue. But if not. And the people in England knew that this was a nevertheless prayer. You know what? We may not be rescued today. We may die today. But if not, we're going to stand against the evil about us. That's the kind of prayer. That's the kind of fortitude. That's the kind of strength that the prayer Jesus has today offers each one of us. And there's three aspects of that prayer we're going to look at. They're actually almost like three different ways you can pray. Three ways you can pray that God can build that kind of fortitude into you when you stand against difficulty. The first way is that we pray to endure pressure. See, Jesus coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, and as he was accustomed, his regular place, place for praying. And his disciples also followed him. So they made their way over to, to the garden. Now they're in the garden. And he came to that place and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, when you see temptation, you think, oh, pray that you won't you know, lust or won't you know, disobey or won't uh, complain or won't be unkind. The word actually is a Greek word, peresimos, which actually means a proving trial. Pray that God will give you the fortitude you need to endure the trial you're about to go through. That's a great way to pray when you're facing things that are beyond your control. Say, God, I don't have the resources. I don't have enough willpower to get through this. God, I'm praying that you would give me what I need to endure the pressure and the proving trial I'm about to go through. And we're going through that as a family right now. My wife's eight weeks out of surgery and not getting really better at all. We're going in for new imaging. We're going in for another consult with a doctor. It's just so frustrating. It's so angering. It's, there's no words for it. 
So one of the prayers I've been praying is that. God, give me the fortitude from you that I don't have for my wife to have to endure the proving trial. That's exactly what God does. In fact, it's pretty amazing, actually. He goes about a stone's throw away, it says next. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. Here's what's amazing. He's going to be sweating blood in a few minutes. And that's after the angel strengthened him. Imagine what he'd be like if the angel hadn't strengthened him. When you go through a proving trial, God, send your angels, send your fortitude, send your strength. Give me what I need and what you need to endure this proving trial. So he does. Now, why does he bring the disciples to this location for this conversation? Now, notice Luke does not call this Gethsemane. He just calls it the Mount of Olives. He doesn't even mention the garden. It's only when you put all the Gospels together do you get the garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. Luke simply calls it the Mount of Olives. Matthew called it a Gethsemane. It's never called the Garden of Gethsemane, even though that's what we talk about it. So why does he bring them to this Mount of Olives and to a Gethsemane? A Gethsemane is a, a, a olive press. And why would he bring them to an olive press to have this discussion about enduring a trial? Well, here's what the Mount of Olives looks like today. <laughs> Not a lot of olives on the Mount of Olives. Because it's almost all cemeteries. Because everybody wants to be there on the Mount of Olives when the Messiah returns. So whether you're Jewish, Muslim, or Christian, this is a very significant place in history. And so it's just everyone's buried there so that they can meet the Messiah or the return of God when he returns. But in its day, it was covered, 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 covered with olive trees. And some of them were just massive. And so because you had all the olive trees, it wasn't just for decoration. It was actually for squeezing the olives, for for burning and for cooking. And so they had to have a Gethsemane or an olive press. So in what we know today is the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a small church that's taken over what used to be a cave. And in that cave probably was one of the largest Gethsemanes. A Gethsemane had two parts. Uh, First part was this section that you'd crush the olives in. And then you'd get the most virgin oil out of it. Then you'd take it off into a lower level where you'd put it in little bags, which I'll explain in a moment, with a telephone pole that would crush the rest of the oils out of it. So just imagine with me for a moment. We're going to take you to that garden like we did at Easter, and I'm going to give you a little bit more detail about the garden. So again, it's, it's 9 p.m., moonlight, it's darkness, and Jesus has come to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's come there with his disciples, and he's just told them, the world's going to hate you from this point on. I'm going to be numbered with the transgressions. And you need to pray that you can endure the trial. And I've taken you here to a Gethsemane. Where places are pressed and things are crushed. Now some of the olive trees that were there, some other sections of Israel, are like hundreds of years old. You can't get your arms around it. Even two people can't wrap their arms around one of these gigantic, beautiful olive trees. Well, the olives then had to be taken and plucked off it and put into a Gethsemane. You would place them around the bin and this gigantic stone would just crush them, would allow the oils to come out. And the way the the casement of that Gethsemane is, you could then capture the most virgin of oil. But you hadn't gotten all the oil out, just the most virgin oil through that process of crushing. I think Jesus brings them here because he's trying to say, hey guys, I'm about to be crushed, you're about to be crushed, and I want to come out of you what God has in you. 
If you go to the lower level of Gethsemane, this is where you take out even more of the oil. A giant telephone pole with boulders that are cranked up for the crushing. You pick up those olives that you had just crushed. You put them into baskets. Those baskets are then going to be stacked one on top of each other. And it's going to take enormous pressure to get that olive juice or olive oil out of it. It's like a piston placed on top of those baskets. And then that piston on top of that would be a large telephone pole with these giant boulders. And that will cause... You crank those things up, more and more weight, pushing down on that piston, squeezing those olives, and again, the oil being captured then in a section on the floor where it can then be used for burning. And Jesus brings his disciples here because I think he wants to say to you and I, life is like that. It will crush you. You're going to need to pray that you can have the fortitude from God to endure the proving trial. Our second prayer. Our second prayer is the prayer to will his will. (laughs) See, he knelt down and prayed, saying, and this is not one of those, you know, this is a fall on your knees. God, I need help. I don't know what to do. I don't have what it takes kind of prayer. I don't know if you have one of those kind of prayers. You're just like, God, help me. I don't even want what you want. Because if what you want is not get me out of here, it's not what I want. Father, if it is your will, I I want your will if it's my will. And my will is take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there's times you just have to pray that, God, I can't fake it. I can't conjure it. I need you to conform my will to your will. I need to want what you want. Because what you're telling me that you want is not what I want. And a nevertheless kind of prayer is, God, help me will your will. Take this cup. Let's look at that phrase, take this cup. Like, what does he mean by that? What is this cup? Why use the metaphor of a cup here? I want you to imagine for a moment, you've got a situation in your life that you don't want. Jesus shows here it's perfectly acceptable. It's a godly prayer to say, God, get this out of my life. God honors that prayer many, many times. Paul says, I had a thorn in the flesh, and three times I prayed for him to take it away. There's nothing wrong with asking God to fix, to change, to modify a situation in your life. I had a friend who had a boss who just was a tyrant, made it very, very hard for anyone to work there, but especially Christians, and she began to pray that God would remove what she changed for, you know, God, grow me, grow me, grow me then. I can't, I want to stay in this job, I want to stay in this location, I want to stay in this career. She began to pray that God would move the boss on. And God doesn't often answer these prayers, but he did. The boss, for for totally unrelated reasons, just announced a few weeks later he was moving on to another section. And she's like, thank you, God. He took the cup from me. So it's totally okay to pray that prayer. But a lot of times God doesn't move it on or take the cup. So I want you to imagine this cup. What is in this cup? In the book of Jeremiah, we get a feel for the idea of what it means to take and drink of a cup. And I think Jesus is alluding to this kind of a cup. It says, take this wine cup of fury. What's in that cup? Fury. The judgment of God against everything that's ever been done wrong is in that cup. Take this cup from your hand and cause all the nations who've rebelled against me, to whom I send you, to drink of the cup of fury. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because the sword that I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, the cup of fury, and I made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and princes, to make them, what's in the cup of fury? Desolation, astonishment, 
hissing and curse. It's the curse cup that he is about to drink. I want you to imagine, what's the worst thing I could ask you to drink this morning? Picture that in your cup. Maybe if you're not a coffee drinker, it's black coffee. Maybe if you're a black coffee drinker, it's sugary coffee. Oh, what is that? If you're a Pepsi person, maybe it's Coke. If it's Coke, it's Pepsi. And you're nowhere near the cup. Now instead, I want you to imagine raw sewage scooped up into that cup. Added in Ebola and death. And that cup is before you. And God says, drink of the cup of death and fury and hissing. And Jesus doesn't want to drink that cup. The cup of death. The cup of God's righteous judgment against anything and everything that's ever been done wrong. And yet looking at that cup of death and disgust. He says, nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus takes that cup of the sewage of human depravity. And he drinks of that cup on the cross. For you and I. And by drinking of that cup of fury, you and I will not have to taste the cup of fury. Remember my dad and I one time were cleaning out the attic. We're cleaning out the attic. We're upstairs, and it's really, really hot up there. So I grabbed this ice-cold Coke that I was drinking. It was so great. And he didn't have one, so I was kind of hiding it. Like, oh, that's so good. Put it over here. And, and then I'm handing some stuff back to my dad. And, and he comes back. And I'm like, slug, slug. Oh, and it's still getting a little warm up there, so it wasn't quite as cold, but still pretty nice. Taking us. He comes back up for a third trip. And, and I thought it would be funny to pretend like I had just found this Coke up there. So he's like, you got another load? Hold on a second, Dad. I'm going to grab a drink. So I reached over, and I grabbed the Coke. He's like, where'd you get that? Well, I was just sitting up here. Don't drink that. I'm sure it'll be fine. So I was so getting him like, look, 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 look. It got to here. And I realized I had placed my Coke here. <laughs> apparently, I had cleaned out the attic with my dad six months earlier. And apparently, I'd had a Coke at that point that I had left up there. Oh my goodness, did I want to vomit. Oh my goodness, should I have listened to my father? Do not drink of this cup. Oh, the joke went horribly wrong. Now imagine your father knows it's a cup of death and tells you to drink of it. Are you willing to say, God, help me will your will? And in that, are you willing to get to the place you can say, nevertheless? See, I can pray half of that all the time. Never, 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 never do I want to go through that. Never, 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 never am I going to put up with that. Never, never, never am I going to do that. Or less, 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 less of that, less of that, less of that, less of that. I can pray never and I can pray less. But willing God's will is praying never the less. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm a good friend of mine was exploring his faith here at Horizon. We were out jet skiing together and we stopped for a little bit just talking about faith. And he said, you know, my biggest challenge, he said, is that I went through cancer. And part of my journey through cancer is I was in a specialty clinic down in Texas. And I was surrounded with children every day and teenagers and people in their 20s. He was in his 40s who were dying of the same thing I was fighting for. It was very hard to keep hope. What was worse is I would see children and then a week later they would, they would be gone. 
So the problem of evil wasn't like something out there. It's something I got to see week in and week out as I went through this journey together. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, no intellectual argument I have for him is going to be helpful. Oh my goodness, how do you get to the place of saying, God, nevertheless, if you want your child home, your will be done. If you're not going to heal me of cancer, nevertheless, your will be done. God, I pray that you would help me will your will. Then we have a third prayer, kind of embedded in here. A third type of nevertheless prayer, and that's the prayer for more earnestness. (laughs) How do we get more earnest? It says that Jesus, being in agony, this is again, after the angel has strengthened him, he's still in agony. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now this word earnestly is a really fascinating Greek word. It's actually esteron, esteron, to extend esteron, to be stretched out. It says that he prayed stretched out kind of prayer. Are you willing to pray in such a way you're saying, God, I like the shape I'm in. But if you need to stretch me in this situation, squeeze me in this situation, pull me in this situation. Oh, God, I don't. Oh, that hurts. Not that way. Not. Oh. But God, I'm willing for you to stretch my faith to make it more genuine. Stretch my fortitude if that's how you want to grow me. Are you willing to pray for more earnestness? Are you willing to be stretch Armstrong? Are you willing to be Gumby pulled out? Are you willing to be rolling out the Play-Doh and rolling it and squishing it and extending it so it can become more than it was? It's a difficult prayer to pray. But it's here in the garden we see probably the most powerful example of Jesus being extended for you and I. And I think there's something really worth considering. Because I think many of us, whether you're Christian or kicking the, the, the tires on Christianity or not sure, most people struggle with this idea. I like Jesus as a way to God, but I cannot believe he's the way to God. And I understand that. You got friends who are Buddhists. You got friends who are good people who are agnostics. You got friends who are covering other religions. And it seems so exclusive that Jesus is the only way to get to God. Let me tell you, I understand that, but I want you to hear me for the next two minutes. I want to try and explain why that cannot be true, or if it is true, you don't want it to be true. Here is Jesus crying out to his daddy, Dad, 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 if there's any other way, That people can get to heaven. That people can know your heart. That people can be reconciled. That people don't have to taste of your judgment. If there's any other conceivable way out there, don't make me go to the cross. And in this moment, either God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... And told him, you gotta go, there's no other way. You gotta go, there's no other solution. And this is the most powerful example of God's grace and mercy and passion for you. Or, 
God is so sadistic that though all the pillars of Islam would have worked or being a good person would have worked or the enlightenment of Buddha would have worked or just trying hard and helping people across the street would have worked. Thousands of other options of how to get to heaven. And his father was so sadistic. He's like, no, I want to see you on the cross. See this moment. Either God so loved you that he made his son take the only way so that you could find a way to know him. Or this is a father and God you would never want to know. Who would let his only son endure such horrific treatment just because he wanted to watch. And the pressure is not being crucified. The crucifixion was horrific. The Romans designed it to torture you. They invented a word, excruciating pain, which meant out of the cross pain. It was horrific. But that's not what Jesus is sweating about. He's about to be disconnected from his heavenly father for the first time in eternity. He's about to go to hell for everybody. He's about to drink all of the judgment that is owed to everybody. The impartial, righteous judgment of God. He's going to drink it all for everything you've done, past, present, future. What your kids have done, your grandkids have done, what your grandfather's done. All of humanity. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the anguish he's under. That he begins to sweat blood. There's a medical condition for this. It's only been seen a few times. But it's a medical condition. It occurs when people are under severe duress. It's called hematidrosis. Or hematidrosis. And it's when the capillaries. In your. That are near a sweat gland. Are under such severe uh, pressure. That they break. And when that happens. They break into your sweat gland. And so your sweat gland brings forth not just sweat. But it also brings forth blood. It's been cited just a few times in history, but this is, again, another reason why the Bible is accurate. Long before we discovered it, it was being cited for exactly what it was. He prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And Jesus was bleeding for you in the garden before he was bleeding for you on the cross. And it's in that blood you see the turmoil he was under, knowing what he was about to endure, because it was the only way you could be at one with your Heavenly Father. And if you have never come to that place in your life where you've really said, hey, I don't believe Jesus kind of died, but I know He died for me, and I know He's the way, make today the day. Do it right now in your own heart as I'm talking. God, I believe. I want that to be true. I want to believe that the God who made the heavens died for me. I receive that into my life right here and right now. I receive that incredible gift of love, that incredible demonstration of your love, that you'd be willing to drink that cup and sweat that out for me. That's what becoming a Christian is really all about. I believe he did what he said he did because there was no other option. And if you want the kind of fortitude to endure difficulty in your own life, you know where you get that? Not by trying harder. You see what he did. You see his nevertheless prayer and say, in light of what he did for me, God, put that in me through your Holy Spirit that I can have some nevertheless prayers in my life as well. That I can face whatever trial. Because in light of the trial you did for me, I'm willing to take whatever trial you give to me. That's our key takeaway today. Pray nevertheless prayers. It's not easy to do. I've been praying all three of these this week. And different degrees of success. <laughs>
What if we begin to pray nevertheless prayers? And it may come in one of these forms. Pick one of these forms for you. You need to pray, God, nevertheless, I need to endure the proving trial. That's what I need you to fill me up with. Are you not even wanting God's will? Because God's will does not seem aligned to your will right now. Maybe you need to pray, God, help me conform my will to your will. Nevertheless, I want your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or maybe you've gotten very comfortable and God's squishing you and rolling you out and extending you beyond what you think you're even capable of. Maybe you want to say, nevertheless, God, if that's what you need to do with me in this season and in this moment, Father, extend me. Nevertheless, I want what you have for me. See, all who, through history, those who've, who've become great people of faith are those who prayed nevertheless prayers. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, but if not. It's there at Dunkirk saying, but if not, we're still going to stand for what is right. It's Jesus in the garden saying, nevertheless. I heard a story recently from Mercy Me. Mercy Me goes around and travels and sings Christian songs, inspires people to have faith and hope in God in the most dire of circumstances. One of their lead singers has a son named Sam. And Sam's had a medical condition since he's two. He has diabetes. He's now 15. He's had over 30,000 shots. He said, it's so hard to get up on stage and knowing that I'm trying to give hope and trying to encourage people. When there's a situation in my life that's probably never going to change. We've prayed about it. God has not fixed it. We've prayed about it. God has not taken it away. He said, sometimes well-meaning, well-meaning Christian people come up after a concert and they'll say, hey, I understand your son has a medical condition. Yeah. Well, we should pray about that right now. He said, I get angry that they're overly, overly simplifying as if I've never thought of that. He said, I appreciate where they're coming from, but he said, there's a lot of times, he said, I've had to come to to realize that my son is going to change the world as a diabetic with 30,000 shots and more coming. He said, I need to get to the place that I can say, even if. He could flick his little finger and fix this thing, but even if he doesn't, he's still good. Even if he doesn't heal, he's still God. Even if he doesn't do what I think he should do and could build a case for, I'm still going to worship him with my life. Because he's the one that battled for me in the garden and was crucified for me on a cross. Listen to this song written by a father about his desire to have faith with a son with a permanent medical condition. <laughs> 